you know, when you're working on something in a lab, you're running experiments. A lot of times things don't work out the way you thought. Things don't work. You, you know, you're iterating. Um, you're learning new things, testing those out. And there's a lot of failure, but it's a process and it can be a long process. And change, making major change falls in the same category. I mean, I worked on, after 9-11, when I went back to the Hill, I worked for five years on this aviation security reform that we wanted to, 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 to get enacted, signed into law. And, you know, it was like five years of blood, sweat and tears. But you don't have to start there. You can start really small. You can start local and then test it out and see how you like it. This is the Once a Scientist podcast. I'm Nick Edwards. This episode was recorded several months ago, so just be aware of that. Also, if you're looking for like the latest global events or celebrity gossip, this is probably not the right podcast for you, but I hope you enjoy it. All right, I, I got to be honest, everyone. Uh, I don't usually get very nervous before uh, podcasts or really before anything because I just kind of jump into things. Um, this this episode, I, I am a little bit because I'm talking with Mark Baer. He um, is really making a big impact on science, and, and I think uh, it's it's really exciting to to talk with him. Um, you know, from a, an advocacy, a science advocacy, science policy uh, perspective. And so, uh, just a quick introduction to Mark. He has he did he he is the president of Bayer Strategic Consulting. Um, he hosts When Science Speaks, a podcast. And so, check it out. Uh, I think you can probably find it on uh, Apple, uh, Spotify anywhere is that is that right mark yeah absolutely all right so he did uh, a master's in public policy at harvard a bachelor's at cornell uh you know i think one of the things that really stands out on your on your uh linkedin profile at least mark is you're the chief of staff in the house of representatives uh, in the u.s house of representatives and also a chief of staff in the u.s senate in the u.s senate uh that's so cool so really excited to have you on and obviously no need to be nervous at all. I'm really looking forward to this and admire what you're doing, Nick. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Uh, so, Mark, I, I want to hear like just briefly, what do you do at Bear Street Strategic Consulting? Well, the, there are really two aspects of it. One is to help scientists and engineers communicate effectively about the real world value of their work to their most important stakeholders. So that could be potential employers, investors, funders, policymakers, you know, other people who can have a big impact on their work, including the public. So how do you do that in a clear, effective way when you're working on complicated stuff? And the other aspect of that is, you know, given my political background that you alluded to, Nick, is how do you talk to policymakers? You know, a lot of research obviously is funded by the federal government. And how do you make your message about what you do engaging and important to members of Congress? It could be state legislators, uh, you know, local people as well, local government officials. You know, how do you do that? Because it's a different, in some ways it's a different language, but it's a different approach that scientists may not really be used to used to taking. So I've been in a lot over the years, is in a lot of those meetings um, and had a chance to observe scientists, whether they were, you know, working in a startup, starting a company in one of the universities. You know, I 
Ed Markey was the, the representative and, and now senator that I worked for. And, you know, Massachusetts, home to these universities, which, you know, oftentimes spin out companies. They have a lot of gifted technical people, whether scientists, engineers. And so we used to do a lot of meetings about their technologies. And there's a right way to do it. And then there's a not so great way to do it. So I try to share my insights uh, from, you know, from that perspective as well to help scientists um, do it the right way in, in a way that's not just engaging, but of course, accurate. Yeah. And communication is incredibly important in science as well as whatever you do outside of science. Because when I think about it, uh, it I, as a scientist, I go to conferences and I would present posters. I would give, you know, talks. Um, I, had to write grants and and really thinking about like how you message something it's it's not taught explicitly in in graduate school in in some instances at least um i kind of learned it myself mm-hmm. and uh it, it, it and if it is it's done on a one-on-one basis uh, from an advisor who who oftentimes they're they're coaching you along the way but you know, who, who, how do we know who, who they were trained by? And I'm, I'm not saying that like scientists are not good communicators. There are a lot of great uh, communicators or scientists that are communicators, mm-hmm. um, but it really differentiates you and helps you distinguish yourself in, in the field, I think, when you have the ability to communicate well. Yeah. That's absolutely right. And it's interesting. And I've been pointing people to this great op-ed in Scientific American from a few months back um, by a woman named Carla Talanian. T-A-L-A-N-I-A-N, and some of her colleagues, because they went and surveyed, in the biotech industry specifically, they surveyed executives from tiny companies to multinational companies and really asked them, like, what do you look for in an employee? And the technical skills are really taken for granted. And it's these types of other skills, communication you know, if you want to include empathy or good listening skills, you know, these other things that, like you say, Nick, can set you apart. And as you go, you know, higher into an organization, get promoted, have more senior roles, it's those skills that can really help propel your your career um, and is a real differentiator. And I kind of look at it like this. I mean, I don't have a science background at all. I mean, the last science class I took was AP Bio at Framingham North High School outside of Boston. <laughs> and I always tell people like, you know, okay, I got a five on the exam. I'm not an idiot, but um, yeah, I just say that tongue in cheek. I loved, I really did enjoy that class. I enjoyed, you know, I enjoyed it, but I wasn't good at it. It didn't come naturally to me. And then when I had an opportunity in college to, you know, to take kind of decide which path I was going to take, I, you know, I pretty much opted out of math and science. I never took another math class. Um, and then that's a lot of people. That's yeah. that, that I did that too, yeah. by the way. Oh, really? Part, yeah. And then I, and then I, and then I came back my senior year of college. Uh huh. Yeah. So, so like, I, I totally get that because like, well, I, you know, sorry, I'm sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, no, but like, okay. I, I think that, uh, in some ways it's the way that it's taught at that mm-hmm. level. And, and it's, it's really hard to engage because like, you have to get a certain base level of knowledge and understanding in order to get to the really interesting stuff. And, and, and that, that's the hard part about science is like, how do, how do you, how do you get people to engage to get to the really interesting stuff? Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think it goes to one of the core principles of effective communication, which is making it relatable 
to people's everyday. I mean, I, I, I think a lot of times people don't see students, maybe they just don't see the connection between what they're doing and the real world. And, you know, there's certainly value in learning things that you can say, well, everything, you know, this is not an apprenticeship in many ways. It's like, you know, you're, you're learning how to think critical thinking skills you can apply to any issue. And I think those are invaluable, no doubt about it. But if you don't make these topics, maybe more like science or math, for example, if you, if, if you don't really make them uh, interesting, you know, there's so much that could be taught in those areas too. Um, then, uh, then people start to drop off. And so, you know, I, I dropped off and I focused on an area that I really love, which is politics. And, and with that, you know, persuasion and rhetoric and communication. Um, and then, you know, I just didn't, I didn't really focus on science. So a lot of the scientists I talked to are basically did the same thing, but in reverse. You know, they were gifted in math and science. They really liked it. They focused on it and they didn't focus on these kind of communication skills that, you know, that we're talking about right now. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I was uh, an English literature major until like a second semester of my senior year of, of college. And, uh, and then all of a sudden I was like, oh, I want to try science. I want to I go back and try chemistry. And I took college chemistry class and I like, and I loved it. And I was like so excited about it. And I realized like, although I really liked rhetoric and I liked being able, I, I, I like thinking from, different perspectives and, and being able to formulate uh, coherent arguments. I, um, I still really like that, um, that the, the science like kind of captivated me. And, and I think that um, both are so important. It's such it, like, if you can combine them, then you're really like, it's, it's unlocking something that not a lot of people have. Exactly. Exactly. And that's really one of the big areas in my on my podcast, and which is why I'm really excited to have you on later on, which is so few people have both those things. I don't. Um, but some do like you, you know, you have talents in both those areas. And so um, I think the good news is that those types of skills can be learned and they can be mastered the more you practice them. And if you think they're important, if you understand their relevance and and, and you kind of embrace the fact that, no, this is something that I want to learn and that I should learn, then you can become really good at it. And then, yeah. you know, you're sort of like this kind of power player. You've got both sides and you can you can go either way. And it's a great it's a wonderful thing to see. I, I've, I've just seen um, a big benefit when I when I've coached people to go into consulting um, to like big strategy consulting firms. Mm-hmm. The people I've coached, I've been fortunate enough to coach a lot of people that have gotten in. And so I, I can see like themes and trends mm-hmm. uh, across that now. And one of the themes that I see is that people that have some sort of volunteering experience and have done something meaningful outside of the lab, they're still incredibly smart people and they still work really hard and, and, and uh, um, do rigorous science. But if they volunteer outside the lab uh, and and do something that's just meaningful to them, it doesn't have to be anything in particular. Um, those are the people that I see succeeding and in getting into really challenging or, or competitive jobs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I don't. Know. So, so so when when you actually work with, are, are you working with individual scientists or are you working with organizations? So I, I you know I, it's basically both. So I work with universities 
and many times that, you know, the universities are, uh, it's PhDs and postdocs at these universities. So, you know, I, I recently did a talk for Carnegie Mellon. I did a, a weekend at U Chicago, Arizona State, you know, Cornell, UNC Chapel Hill. So I, I go to these places when there's not a pandemic on and, and I do, I do talks or I, I really love doing the workshops, which are like a half day. Um, I did one at UVA in January of this year where, you know, I'm kind of consider myself like a practical person. Like I want people to leave feeling they learn something specific that's actionable that they can apply right away. And so I want to teach these skills, get them to practice, feedback, iterate, refine it. And so by the time they leave the workshop, they have a really good sense of what like a strong A presentation or communication interaction looks like. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, I have an online course that I do as well. I'm doing more of that now. I just finished one doing, um, doing one for the Biotech Association in Massachusetts, Mass Bio. And it was interesting because those students are in industry already. They're, you know, scientists at Bristol Miles, Myers Squibb, you know, Novartis, other places. And um, they're, they're looking to do very much what you said, Nick, was they want to advance in their career at their company or start a new company. And they just feel like they never got the communication skill set that they recognize they're going to need to advance. Yeah, it's, it's funny because I, I think a lot of scientists that listen to this won't even realize this. They, they, they won't even know that this is important. And they'll, they'll probably, in some cases, they may dismiss it what I'm about to say, which is um, like even writing an email, a really good email, it's not, it's not a hard thing to do, but it's a thing that you have to learn. Mm -hmm. And um, many people do not know how to write a good email and, and how to engage somebody to um, get them to, you know, whether it's help with something or, or just to get to know somebody because you're interested in what they're doing. Um, it, there, there's an art and, and a little bit of you know, process behind it. And I had no idea when I was a PhD student, even when I was a postdoc, I basically just had to start, like, it was a few, you know, really kind people that maybe had had, had a, a similar background as me had done a PhD. And they were like, well, I realized, like, I, they remembered being in that position, because I didn't know what I was doing. I would, I would, I would just say a sentence and, and like not even put like dear whatever and, and what, you know, uh, best Nick at the end, right? <laughs> like it's a very simple and, and minor thing it sounds like, but it makes a big difference. But then, then there's the more challenging things, which are, you know, having a really dynamic presentation where um, things flow smoothly from, from one slide to the next. And like the audience understands what, what the storyline is from the outset and also like you know even reading just the titles of slides to uh, this is one thing i'm very passionate about is like when you when you build powerpoints your titles of your slides are basically a story and mm-hmm. and you should be able to read across all those titles and uh and and without looking at any of the content in in the actual slides and that tells you what you're trying to communicate it's not very it's not a very common approach in science um and, and so I think there are just a lot of things like that that are, you know, challenging to, they, they take some time and some, like, um, effort to learn. It's not that they're, like, 
the most difficult things to learn, but like to practice and get really good at speaking, it can be difficult and it, t- and it can take practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I've been on my soapbox here, but <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Mark, I, I think, um, how did you get uh, really interested in science as a problem in the first place? I mean, well, and, and maybe like, you know, what were the motivations behind politics as well? Sure. And, you know, they're, kind of, they're related, actually. You know, it's funny because I, I, I said earlier on that I don't have a science background, but I, I always worked with, when I was on the Hill, I always worked with scientists because we had fellows from the American Association for the Advancement of Science from AAAS, their science and technology policy fellows. I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with that program, fantastic program. And we would take very seriously the evaluation process, the recruitment process for finding the right fellows. And once we did, they would be full-fledged members of our team. So they would have their own portfolio and they would, they would be like any other legislative staffer. Um, of course, they didn't know what, you know, they, they were kind of dropped into the middle of the forest with like a little compass maybe and didn't have, uh, you know, like anyone would be like this, this foreign environment, how do you navigate? So I did a lot of mentoring over the years with our AAAS fellows, and I always found them just outstanding, you know, smart, eager, creative thinkers, and they just needed to be acclimated to this new universe. And so I did, did a lot of that. And then when I left the Hill, um, I became concerned, you know, after the 2016 election, that the facts and evidence and data that was always foundational for our policies was necessary, but ne- it was never sufficient, which kind of gets to this communication, advocacy, rhetoric, you know, navigation kind of skill set. But at the very core, um, we always based everything that we did on the best available data, and we wanted to be 100% ironclad and make sure that we got the facts right. So I talked to a lot of experts as a result of that. Uh, But I just became concerned after the election that what I considered foundational myself and my colleagues and my boss at the time, you know, was being replaced by ideology, you know, political agendas, you know, so anything from, you know, measuring what's what's an acceptable standard from a regulatory standpoint for parts per billion when you're talking about air quality or water quality or all these different things that scientists bring to the table as far as what's the best available data, you know, that was being denigrated, dismissed, or scientific boards being disbanded. There wasn't a head of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, OSTP, for many, many months. And, um, you know, experts and scientists that I had really, you know, relied on their viewpoints and their work, suddenly in policymaking at the federal level, at least, um, was, was they, they really they really were being downgraded and marginalized, and I thought that was a huge problem. So that got me interested in in trying to say, look, like I think part of it was, was of course, it was March for Science, which um, which responded to that. And I, oh, I remember work. being involved very early on. That's such a great it was such a great movement. Yeah, yeah. And so I did some work for them, and I spoke at their Chicago summit. I think it was the summer of eighteen. Um, talking about, you know, how do you navigate in the policy world, uh, talking about how do you push back against alternative facts and fake news, uh, a chance to speak at the AAAS annual conference in Texas. I think that was in February of 18. And, 
on this topic. And, and it was funny because when I did the topic, it was, it was, I was sort of like a walk-on speaker. Um, they had this unconference opportunity where you could submit topics and uh, kind of like a couple weeks before the conference. And I submitted that and I was accepted. And then when I went in, um, the room just was packed um, and they kept bringing more and more chairs and then people were standing and sitting and the whole thing is, because, uh, you know, how do you respond? How do you address? How do you disabuse people maybe of this information that just is not not true? It's it's not true. It's, it's not based on anything that's, that's real in a sense. And um, Science Magazine wrote a piece about my talk, which was completely out of the blue and, and fortunate, but it was sort of sharing wow. some of the techniques that I had developed. And I had seen sort of these, this kind of syndrome in the past. And my fascination in it was more, well, how do we combat alternative facts? Uh, is there a way to actually engage with groups who are um, putting out this information like, you know, vaccines cause autism or climate change a hoax or, you know, all those, all those sorts of things. And um, so I've, I've done a lot of talking about that and writing about it, uh, but it all kind of boiled down to look like I considered myself a, a serious policy person. And I felt like the science and the data that was a foundation for all of our policies was really no longer that important anymore. And I didn't, I didn't like that. That's a huge, huge problem for all of us, actually. Um, and we're, we're kind of seeing that the, the COVID-19, the pandemic is the, I would say, the historic example of why it is so important for scientists to be involved in a policy, to be relatable, um, and... Uh, and, and we're seeing what happens when data and evidence is is ignored um, because of some political agenda. And it, it really, I mean, not to be dramatic about it, but, you know, there are life and death consequences related to this. Um, mm -hmm. You know, people who are getting infected and and unfortunately dying because some some political, some governor somewhere, you know, is 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 making decisions regarding lockdowns based on pressure, political pressure rather than public health data. Oh gosh. That's frightening. Um, but, but, but I think well, that you're like, exactly. Like topic. Yeah. Sorry. Oh. That. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, I, I think that it's, it's really important to, to, to bring it up because I mean, there, there's no other time to make these changes than now. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and we need scientists to be involved in the conversation Absolutely. and, and and I think that that has not happened historically enough. And and I'm not calling out science necessarily. I I, I am in a way, and I'm and I'm, I'm not. I don't mean it in a mean way, but I think that like who who else can we expect to speak up for what we do than us? Right. Right. Yeah. And 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 it, and it's and it's a priority. And and I have found this incredibly difficult. So Mark, I'll, I'll tell you like. The alternative facts, combating alternative facts, com combating fake news, um, from my perspective, mm -hmm. is incredibly challenging because mm -hmm. here, here's here's what happens to me, uh, from my perspective, is when I, I have family members and they'll probably listen to this podcast and and that's okay, um, but because I talk to them openly about these things, um, I I have family family members that I can talk to them about, you know these types of things and the the more evidence I bring to it and the more kind of rational thought I bring to it, the more that gives them 
in their minds evidence that that I'm biased. Mm-hmm. And it's another data point to say that what they were thinking is right in a lot of instances. Uh-huh. And and I and I have no idea how to combat that. The only way I can see, the only way that seems to work for me is to try and somehow make it real in their life. Like, uh-huh. you know, which is, hey, uh, like I know somebody that went through COVID and like, and I was talking to them when it happened and, and they had a hard time breathing, you know, like yeah. this is a real thing mm-hmm. and this is a, this is an important issue and we have to, you know, we have to address it. And, and like, then they'll, then maybe they'll start to like acknowledge that, okay, maybe this even exists for mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. And, and then, and then they can, and then they can entertain the thought that like, oh, it's a problem. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I'd be curious to hear how, how you think about that. Sure. Sure. And what you're describing is a very typical and logical response. And it's one that many people, you know, a, a trajectory that many people follow. Um, unfortunately, it's the opposite that is actually kind of effective. And I'll just kind of give, give you give you a little, give give you and listeners kind of a, a sense of this. And so, the, yeah. the first reflex, particularly of a scientist or somebody who's familiar with data, is to respond to this with data. And most of the time, that is counterproductive, and it can actually create a backfire effect and people start to dig in more deeply to their you know erroneous uh, positions yeah. and so what i recommend before for doing that, i mean there are different i mean i teach a i've done a whole talk on this so i'll, I'll give you a, just a, the, the essence of it is really it's to use another skill that i think scientists are really good at which is asking questions and the first thing to realize is that their reaction or whatever they're holding on to that's not true is it's not based on fact but it's it's an emotional reaction that they're having um it's it's based on emotion it could be based on certain values that they hold some community kind of accepted beliefs um faith sometimes uh, impacts it their personal experience which they're then extrapolating so anecdote things like that it has nothing to do with any kind of data or fact so when a scientist, say, rolls in with, well, I'm going to tell you the real story based on this data that's been collected, there's a complete mismatch there. Um, it's just basically static that gets, you know, back and forth. There's, it's a different channel that that person is listening to. It's not the data channel. It's more emotion and personal experience channel. So what I say to scientists is, you know, I know your initial reflex is going to be, let's go to the data. But what I encourage scientists to do is go to another skill they have, which is let's go to asking questions. Let's like, let's ask a lot of questions. Well, why do you feel like, you know, why do you, why do you think that? And, and really listen with authenticity and, and ask just, you know, questions. And then maybe they spawn kind of follow-up questions. It's not an interrogation, but what I encourage scientists to do is, is really try to start to uncover what are those, you know, what are the roots of, this position that they're holding that clearly is is not true and doing that accomplishes a few things one you know engaging genuinely lowers the temperature of the conversation you know people now you're having more of a conversation rather than a lecture where you're going to tell them that they're you know all these different reasons why they're wrong well no one likes to be told that they're wrong even when they are wrong they don't like to be told they're wrong and sometimes they dig you know they dig in deeper when when because they start to get defensive and angry 
So because because they have a ground truth that like that that in in many ways it's like this is my immovable immovable thing. Maybe it's a religious tenet or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, that and 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 so it doesn't matter how how you try and like how you try and argue because like that thing is never going to move, right? Yeah, and yeah, and so so what you start to find out when you engage with authenticity is you might get some responses that enable you to to both empathize and relate and actually some things that are in common with this person's experience and yours that that really goes to a principle that that i use i call you need to connect before you communicate you really need to the other person really needs to feel like you understand or that you have some shared, whether it's values or experiences, um, to, to start to open up and, and become more receptive to actually the content of what you're saying. So what I encourage people to do is start with this process of asking questions with authenticity, and that will uncover some, may uncover some commonalities between you and your listener or listeners. Um, it also will send the message to the person that look, I'm I'm engaging in good faith. Like I want to hear your view, and that will lower you know lower the temperature because these these conversations get very emotional very quickly, as I'm sure mm-hmm. that you know. Yeah. Um, and you don't you don't want that because then you're, you're you're going nowhere. You're making things worse. Yeah, I I love that, um, and I think it's really you 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 have to be able to um, get to the the base motivations mm-hmm. of that person to understand them mm-hmm. in a way that is uh that you can relate with and then as soon as you can relate and as soon as you can be able to like see things from their perspective and explain things in a way that might make more sense to mm-hmm. them um because of the way that they think then you can really unlock uh the ability to have an influence on them and because they'll start to like you and and also <laughs> Does that is that kind of the way that you see it? Sure. No, absolutely. And and it's a similarity that you're going for. I mean, I just want to say one thing too is that not everyone is going to be persuadable. So yeah. I, I say to people, and I kind of think about it from a political campaign standpoint. You know, just roughly speaking, twenty percent of the people will completely be with you regardless of what you say or do. And then of course you've got the, the spectrum, roughly. You know, the twenty percent on the other side. So you think of the normal curve a little bit. Twenty percent. Who are, who are, I call them lost causes on the other side, you know, you, you could walk on water, uh, but they still won't believe what or accept or change their position. And you really don't want to spend any time with either of those two tails. You want to really focus mm-hmm. on the middle and the persuadables. Um, and then you want to think about, you know, before you even decide to engage, you want to think about like, what do I want to get out of this conversation? Um, you know, you mentioned Facebook, like, is it, is that I just want, you know, Uncle Joe to stop forwarding and liking all this stuff. It's not true. Um, or do I really want to see if I can, you know, engage with him, figure out like why he even thinks this. And maybe, you know, maybe he's going to change his position. Is that realistic? Is that something that I can do? And, you know, what's the, you know, how many, you know, how much time, energy I'm going to have to to um, invest to, to get to that point? Um, so I encourage people to kind of think of this like no go no go decision before they just you know make a make a move on, on how they're going to engage. Or Is it worth it? Engage, yeah, yeah. I like that. That's a, that's a great point. Um, hmm. I, the 
there's also, I think, an element of um, like having humility, mm-hmm. and some, sometimes in I'm just, again, I'm speaking from my experience. I can't speak for all scientists, but like uh, I tend to think sometimes that like I can figure out how things work, and um, and then therefore I I dig in and I, and, I, and I think okay, I have evidence for how this works, and therefore it makes sense. It's a good working model for me. Mm-hmm. And so um, if someone else is going to convince me that this is wrong, they need to have really strong evidence to show me that. Mm-hmm. And and so then uh, it's, it's almost like an, an exercise in humility to realize, to step back and to say, wait a second, everything that I, everything that I think and the way that um, I approach things is still a model. And, and, um, and so like having the humility to, to, to say, like, I'm willing to listen to what somebody else says and see, like, do they, do they, are, do they have good points that maybe within this whole thing of like, of, of misunderstanding and, and fake news or whatever, mm-hmm. or alternative facts, maybe there is some truth in there that like I can learn from. Yeah, I, I I think that's I think that's absolutely right. I think, you know, just taking an example of you know set, thinking that the MMR, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine, you know, causes autism. Um, you know, if that if you were talking to a group or talking to an individual who was holding on to that, um, you know, that, I, that's patently false. <laughs> right. Yeah. Of right. course, it's not true. And and you could say, oh well, you know the. The, the, the MD who, who wrote that, you know, he has license revoked and the, the journal it appeared in, you know, retracted it. It's been demonstrated with all these studies and meta studies, and all these things. It's not true, right? But you think about it, like what's more emotional than something that affects your child? Right? There aren't, <laughs> you struggle to think about that. Maybe the birth or death of an individual is probably the most emotional experience that us guys are going to have, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, so we're already talking, talking about this MMR thing, we're already talking about a highly emotional topic, right? And so if you roll in with what I basically just said, these facts about the studies and all these other things, then you can see how you're just, you're just broadcasting on the wrong channels, you know? But Mm -hmm. if you kind of said, look, like I have, you know, two kids, you know, three kids, I, I have little ones at home, you know, and leading with something like, so this is important to me. This question is extremely important to me too, because I have to make decisions. You know, my family has to make decisions about vaccination. Um, you know, you're, you're right away connecting with this person. You're, you're sending the signal that on some level you can understand what they're, you know, what they're going through or their viewpoint. Um, and then you sort of want to ask more questions and, and then answers to those questions, as you were saying, you know, those can be what I call connection points. You know, you might say, oh, you have a three-year-old. Oh, I have one too. Or, you know, mine's five, whatever it is. You know, you're starting to build this this similarity, which leads quickly to likability because people, you know, I, I sometimes say, uh, you know, affection, connection, uh, communication, mm-hmm. um, you know, that kind of pathway. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's some nice, good words of wisdom. I think that, um, yeah, I, I really appreciate hearing this. I'm, I'm learning a lot myself. Um, so, you know, you've you've worked on on Capitol Hill. You've worked in in the Senate. You've seen things 
kind of behind the curtain um, from a science perspective and from a policy perspective. What, what, what do you see as being things that need to be addressed in, in the field of, of science? I know that that's a very broad question, but um, I don't know if there are some like pet topics that you, that you think are really important that need to be addressed in addition to alternative facts. and Sure. I mean, I think it's really being comfortable talking to general audiences in ways that are clear, jargon-free, relatable relevant uh, and getting and put making that more of a priority just generally speaking like there are people who are good at it clearly you know you've got some great skills in that trained in it um, you do it obviously you have this podcast but I turn the mirror I say oh, look like I if I were as a communicator if I were to go into a physics lab like I'd start blowing stuff up right away you know I'd like mm-hmm. cause a lot of damage I'm not you know I have zero skill in that area. Um, so in you some can ways, learn it though if you wanted to, right? Right, it's true. Um, it's true. And, and not, I'm not saying that's for lack of effort. And I'm I'm just saying like I, th- I think that smart people are smart people across the board, regardless of whether you're a scientist or whether you're in policy. Sure, sure. And and so I think one thing that that and there are people who recognize this clearly. The March for Science movement was basically, you know, people, you know, scientists recognizing look, we need to get more involved in the political process or organizations like 314 Action, 314action.org, which are working with scientists, recruiting scientists to run for office. And um, so I, I, you know, if we want to have, continue to have influence on, on how these major issues that affect all of us, you know, how they're presented and how they are, you know, talked about and, and understood, then I would say that I'd hope, and this is sort of why I do what I do, is that scientists will want to be empowered and equipped with these skills because um, the, the alternative is ceding this to policymakers who have no background uh, in data and evidence and, and, all, and all sorts of things. And they'll just come up with policies like we're seeing during this epidemic where, you know, oh, that you know, wearing masks could be harmful to you because of some, you know, breathing in the CO2. I mean, it's all this crazy stuff. And, and that has implications for every one of us. You know, I don't want some political hack making policy, you know, on climate change or public health, you know, uh, based on some agenda that he or she has. Yeah. Um, I want someone who has dedicated his or her life to these topics and I don't tend or intend to over-dramatize this, but um, it is kind of a big deal. It sounds to me like what you do at Bayer Strategic Consulting is, um, it's, it sounds to me like it's more of a mission than it is a business to you, which is like, you, you see this as a, a, just a huge societal need. And, and, and the business is just really to help fill that gap well you're right and um it kind of goes back to something that we touched on very briefly which is sort of the 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 connection between politics and science and even though i don't have a science background at all i feel a kinship with scientists because i feel like scientists get into their line of work for similar reasons as i got into mine which is to make a major difference 
to work on meaningful things that can really improve the way people experience their lives, to take on these really big problems um, and, and do that in a way that is very sort of campaign cause focused. Um, and, uh, and so I, I really do feel like there's a lot of similarity between, you know, why I got into politics, why I'm doing what I do now and why scientists are um, focused on, on their mission. And I, that's why I just love doing what I do. I feel really fortunate to, to be able to do this and work with fantastic people all the time. I just love working with scientists. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll call out a couple episodes where um, scientists have gone into policy on, on the podcast. Um, Chanel Matney is a, is a really great one where she um, went from uh, neuroscience um, at, at Johns Hopkins and, and she, during the Freddie Gray um Mm-hmm. The, the the incident she she's um a, a black female scientist and she was just she, she she felt like she needed to make a change and she was passionate about science she was passionate about uh, about like making a change and so she started doing little things within her local within within her community um uh, another one is is uh, daniel fam He's one of the first episodes, and and uh, he he I think he worked maybe worked with Chanel on this. Um, built founded this thing called Project Bridge, which they they went and taught people in inner city Baltimore um, about about science, you know, mm-hmm. just in the local community, and it really opened up some great uh, career opportunities for mm-hmm. them now for them as well. And so they've had these really awesome careers. So you know, just say like go back and, and take a look at this is if this is interesting to you, but also, you know, look at Mark's podcast when science speaks, because it's, it's really, it's excellent, Mark. Like, I think that it, it's filling a, a, a big need. Well, I appreciate that, Nick. And, and I was really excited when we connected and, and, and looked at your podcast also. And I, I think it's great. You know, you have this background, obviously PhD, uh, in neuroscience, uh, as well as the consulting and the the communication aspect of your profile, and you know, it's funny. I ask if you look at my my website, if you look at whensciencespeaks.com as the podcast website, and you look at the different episodes and focus on the ones that say are talking about communication, and I have these PhDs who are also amazing, you know, communicators. Um, you know, I always ask, well, how did this happen? You know, how, how, are, how do you have both those talents? Uh, because a lot of people don't, including myself. And one thing that comes back a lot as far as a response is that the PhD is first generation college grad in their family. And yeah. I, I started thinking about That's that. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you just proving my point. And, 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 it, and, and, you know, this is still a, a hypothesis, but it makes a lot of sense. And, and the way I look at it, and Nick, you've experienced this firsthand, is that, you know, imagine someone who is, um, you know, I, I, I interviewed this woman who's absolutely a rock star, um, Crystalline Rhodes, and a PhD and, and really amazing venture capitalist and doing some really cool stuff. Uh, and I posted about her on, on, on my LinkedIn page recently. And, and she said, look, I was, you know, I, I grew up in this area of Texas, you know, I, neither my parents 
went to college. I, I, it was clear kind of early on that I was good at math. And, and then I kind of went from there and, and pursued these to- topics and ended up getting, you know, Harvard, Harvard Medical School as far as her training. And, um, you know, someone like that who from a relatively young age in school was going to surpass what her parents had learned and was going to be doing things academically that you know, where her parents didn't necessarily have a good frame of reference, but they want to know what their child's doing. What are you working on? What did you do today in school? Uh, you know, kind of a, a common question that we all ask our kids. Um, and, you know, if you think about your 11 years old, 12 years old, you know, you're, a, you're in high school, you know, you want to explain this, but, you know, you need to do it in a way that is accessible, accessible to your family and friends in a way that's not condescending. I mean, these are kind of authority figures. These are authority figures in your life. And you do that starting in high school, say, and, uh, you know, you keep doing that all throughout, you know, college and, and grad school, perhaps, and, and you get really, really good at it. Um, and, and that kind of, you know, that's how you have these people who are just brilliant uh, in both of those subject areas. Hmm. That's interesting. I, um, I, I don't consider myself brilliant in, in either, to be honest with you, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I think that um, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and, you know, it's just the ability to pick up on something and, and, and learn how to um, apply it to different types of problems. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, and, and to me, that's kind of what the scientific process is, is, is just a problem solving method. Mm-hmm. And you can, if the problem is I don't know how to communicate, then you'll figure out the resources and the tools to, to be able to, to do it. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think, I think, you know, thankfully now we have resources and tools to be able to do those things. And, and there are people that uh, universities are starting to focus more on these, these skills and, and mm-hmm. these things. And, you know, they're having you come speak out or come speak. Um, I think that that's a big change in, mm-hmm. in academia in a lot of ways that's happened over the last, I don't know how many years, but um, and I think it's, it's needed more and more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's funny because one of the first things I noticed when I was spending time on campuses was that in a situation where maybe 12 to 15 percent of PhDs are actually going uh, onto a tenure track position, going to stay in academia, you got, you know, 80, 85 plus percent of people who are not. Um, but yet not pursuing a tenure track position is still termed an alternative career path. <laughs> um, and as someone who's really tuned into rhetoric and, and the power kind of dynamics and structures behind language, you know, that was the first thing that struck me because it seems like it's almost a, a denigration of, of that other track, even though the ma- vast majority of people are going into it. But that kind of language is reflected in the training that that people are getting, which is more along the lines of, okay, you know, everyone's going to be going along the line of staying in academia and and doing that. So it creates this, I would say, market failure. You know, there's a, there's a, there's just a gap here. There are just, you know, most of the people are going along into a career for which, you know, they're not getting this subset of skills um, because there's still maybe an archaic, you know, archaic kind of, attitude about university and what what the universities research universities should be producing which is tenure track professors who are going to pursue tenure track positions even though that's no longer the reality 
it seems like in many cases the training is still attached to kind of that relic um, and, and it creates real problems. But as you point out too, Nick, that is changing a lot. Um, clearly March for Science was was a, a big example of this younger cohort, you know, wanting to get into politics and, and learn how to communicate and do these other types of skills, communicate to broader audiences and learn these types of skills that are uh, are so critical in, in all careers, but particularly when you're not going to be talking to people, say, in your lab or your, your scientific colleagues. I, I, uh, I didn't realize that you were so closely involved with, um, with March for Science because uh, I, I remember when that first happened, I, I think I was like, I remember joining that Facebook group when mm-hmm. there were like less, or I think it was about 100 people. Mm-hmm. And and then seeing it grow, yeah. like just exponentially, right. uh, it was it was crazy, um, and and I think that it did make a a, a big impact on the scientific culture. And and mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, it, it was were you involved pretty early on with that? So um, of course, you know, the, so the election happens November twenty sixteen. Inauguration is. January 2017, and the march is like not long after that. Um, you know, the well, they had a like 1.1 million worldwide. There were 100,000 people on the mall for March for Science um, in, in the first quarter of 2017, and then um, I um, I probably got plugged in. It was either March of 17 or March of 18, um, where I was talking to board members for, for March for Science and Caroline Weinberg was executive director at the time of the national organization. And obviously there are these different cities and states that were setting up groups, which is fantastic. Um, you know, when I was an undergrad, I did independent research with a professor on French student protests. And I got really interested in protest movements and the evolution of protest movements. And mm-hmm. When I what I saw with March for Science was they had really the, the they had nailed the first phase, which is this mobilization, right? You had all these people who were now marching, participating, going online, joining Facebook groups, so forth. Well, then the next step, of course, is so okay, great. Now we've got people mobilized. Well, what are we going to do to actually make an impact? And that is such a hard um, step to take or leap to take, and for anyone. And particularly for people who aren't professional organizers, you know, who are doing this kind of separately from their day jobs. And so when I went to the conference, and I suppose the conference would have been summer of 18, um, you know, it was clear that the organization was trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to work on? What particular topics are we going to work on? And that's a huge lift, um, even for people who do this for for a living, you know, enormous number of people all over the world, things like that. What do we do? And so, um, you know, I, I wasn't what I was doing as part of this was trying to say, you know, when I when I was giving talks, it was let me show you some of these advocacy principles. Like if you're going to, I would recommend. I think they were. I think the right instinct was okay. Then I think what we want to do now is go into um, the policymakers and and have face to face meetings stay at their, in, whether in Congress or in their local offices and, um, and advocate the question they were, they were trying to solve was what should we be advocating for? Right. And, um, it was hard to, hard to get their arms around it. I was 
talking about here are some of the advocacy techniques and the approach that can be really effective. And, um, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I was sort of basically saying like, look, I know how to do this. Let's, let's talk about how it might be, might be applied. So that was my, I think what I did was it was like the advocacy trainer. They, they Facebook live. I did a Facebook live with people, martial science people that were all over the place um, before their, their Hill day where they had some people actually going up to Capitol Hill and talking with members of Congress. That's so cool. Uh, what can what can scientists do? Like, mm-hmm. how 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 can a scientist m- make a change? Sure, I mean there are so many ways, and I think the first thing to realize, and again, I, I feel scientists understand this in their own work, which is that you know when you're working on something in a lab, you're running experiments. A lot of times, things don't work out the way you thought. Things don't work. You you know you're iterating. Um, you're learning new things, testing those out. And there's a lot of failure, but it's a process and it can be a long process. And change, making major change falls in the same category. I mean, I worked on after 9-11 when I went back to the Hill um, after uh, doing other things for about six years, grad school and working at a startup at a consulting company. Also, um, you know, it was after 9-11 and I, I worked for five years on this aviation security reform that we wanted to 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 get enacted signed into law and you know it was like five years of blood sweat and tears i mean that we're working on um, all these different twists and turns to get this closure of this loophole and the loophole essentially was all the air cargo that delta u.s you know uh, you know united all these different uh, commercial air carriers when when people started getting afraid to fly the carers were making up the revenue by carrying a lot of commercial cargo. So it could be flowers, lobster, you know, what machine parts, whatever. And that was all going underneath the plane next mm. to the passengers check bags. The, the problem was that none of that commercial cargo was being screened for explosives. Mm. Uh, it was a, uh, an administrative paperwork check that TSA was using. So you can imagine, you know, passengers are going through this, entire process and their check bags of course are getting screened carry-ons they're getting screened swapped all these different things but then you had you know we're talking about seven billion pounds annually that was being sent around the u.s not being screened so we said this is wrong huge risk we need to deal with it and so i i spent five years working on that um and uh, you can imagine the airline industry was against this administration was the George W. Bush administration at the time. They were against it. Freight forwarders, you know, all these. We basically had the pilots, the flight attendants. We had the families of 9-11 victims uh, who were all supportive of us. Um, but had to build this coalition and then, you know, all these different mechanisms, figure out what levers legislatively could we pull, um, whether they're amendments, resolutions, bills. Um, how could we develop a media strategy to bring pressure um, and all these different things. So um, we got it done. Uh, you know, President Bush signed it into law, signed it, signed the uh, the the bill, which was the um, re- implementing the recommendations of the 9/11 Commission, which is this big reform bill that was meant to um, prevent another 9/11 from ever happening uh, again. And so this provision about the airline and the cargo was a section in that bill. Was, is included wow. in that bill. So when he signed it, That's so cool. Yeah. Um, and so um, 
I just I say that because I think people's expectations should be clear at the beginning. Um, thing major change can you know take time and not be. Don't get frustrated by that fact and think about your own experience in the lab. Um, when you're working on the big problems, you're trying to find figure out why you know these particular cells um, are are mutating or you know what are some of the ways to um, you know to attack cancerous cells in some part of the body like it's a big huge deal and it's something that is going to take some time to figure out most likely um, but there are small things you can do too you know you can certainly call your policymaker whether it's state local county you know you could get sometimes I, I recommend people get involved kind of locally like you know they were building a new high school in my in my county and um, it wasn't going to have a lot of the facilities like it wasn't going to have you know, a, a, a football field wasn't going to have a big enough theater, a cafeteria. And the county was saying they were going to build this high school in the part of the county, which is the most economically disadvantaged and diverse. And I and I and, and a group of us who kind of got together and said, like, no, that's that's not right. Like, you hmm. you, you can't do this. Um, and so, you know, I got involved uh, in that effort and would encourage scientists to and, and not to Think, well, I'm not an expert in XYZ issue, you know, I'm not an education expert, or I'm not, you know, if there's a, you know, a, an environmental issue, or whatever, not to kind of sideline yourself, because think about the analytical skill set that you have, and the sophistication of, you know, understanding and calling out maybe flaws in data and so forth that's being used to justify something. And getting involved locally, it does, it could be going to a meeting, it could be um, responding to an article in the paper, it could be calling or tweeting or you know putting a Facebook post up about some policy issue and tagging your member of Congress, you know, for example, commending that person or urging that person to do something. Um, many of these things can be done. They're low impact, low low time commitment, and then you do some of that, and maybe you get comfortable doing it, and you see some response. Um, and, and then maybe you decide, uh, okay, well now I'm going to, you know, I want to go to DC or I want to go to my member of Congress's local office and, and meet with the person who handles X, Y, Z issue that I'm passionate about, um, and do that. And, and gradually, you know, you might find that, um, that you, you're getting some traction and, and you're, you're seeing kind of some of the fruits of, of your efforts and, Maybe you're building a relationship with the office and they kind of view you as a resource or an expert on a particular issue. And you know, look, I, I used to do this all the time. Then then you'd have a policy issue in that area. And you say, well, I better call Nick because, you know, I know that he knows a lot about this neuroscience issue that we're working on. And, and you know, maybe maybe he'll review this draft bill that we have and maybe he'll provide some language for it that could get included. And or maybe there's a hearing coming up on you know, Alzheimer's and it would be great. Nick knows a lot about this aspect of it. Maybe he would be willing to testify, you know, all sorts of opportunities, but you don't have to start there. You can start really small. You can start local and then test it out and see how you like it. I love that. Yeah. It, it just starts with doing one thing mm-hmm. and, and, and like having the bravery to volunteer or, or just, you know, even if even if it's something really small, it can kind of like snowball. Mm-hmm. It sounds like, yeah. and and um, yeah, I think that I can learn a lot from that myself. So um, I really appreciate it, Mark. This has been a lot of fun, and I and I've really learned a lot. And and let me just say, like, uh, honestly, I, I 
I, I think, you know, from the, from the bottom of my heart, like really appreciate the work that you're doing to, you. to advocate, advocate for, for science and um, to help scientists to be able to um, kind of unlock some of that power, because I think that there's so much potential energy within the academic system that the more we can unlock that to make a, a like a positive difference in the world, like to me, what, what greater effect can you have in the world? Exactly how I would phrase it. That's, <laughs> I think that's great. That's, I appreciate the, the kudos and, and um, you know, I just have tremendous respect for you and for colleagues who are doing these things. And if I can help empower or equip, um, you know, this, this community with these skills, um, you know, that's really, you know, we can, we can make some amazing, amazing change. If people are interested in learning more about what I do, um, I try to make it easy to, to connect. You can actually text using, you know, you can just take out your phone and text the word science speak, you know, one word science speak to the number uh, 44222. So if you just text science speak 44222, then, um, you know, you can connect with me and, and I try to provide resources and interesting articles that I read and things like that to folks on my list. I am uh, putting it down in my phone right now, real quick, actually. So, uh, 44222. Yeah, yeah. Sign um, speak to 44222. Okay, that's great. Uh, and and um, just real quick, it, it's it's like a, a, a message board or... Um, it's it's just it's a list that I um, I know people okay they're interested in you know X Y Z topic and when I come across things that are an X Y Z topic I send to the list and you know ask questions sometimes hey what do you want to learn or you know what are you working on or like I just sent a an article to a list that was really interested in um, alternative facts and there's an article in Wired magazine like last week that I read. Um, about combating alternative facts online and some efforts in that area. And so I was like, hey, yeah, let me, you know, send that to my list of people who care about that and ask them what they think. Like, what do you think about the different points that were made in the article? But it's a great way for me to just continue to be connected to this community. I feel really, you know, um, like I said, fortunate to, to be working with, but also for people to talk back and engage with me about different things that they may be working on. That's awesome. All right, and 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 I swear, hundred percent. This is not like an advertisement or anything. Like, it's it, it, uh, I, but I fully endorse it because I think that you know the work that you're doing is is, is awesome. So, uh, I guess it's uh, science science speak at four four two 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 two. Okay, yeah. uh, perfect. All right, thanks, Mark. All right, so good to talk to you, Nick. All right, take care. Okay, you too. Bye bye. This is the Once a Scientist podcast. I'm Nick Edwards, the host and producer. Caroline Sferrazza and Sam Asinoff co-produce the show. They also write show notes for each episode with a profile for each guest and some of their favorite books. Check it out on our website at www.onceascientist.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at underscore onceascientist and on Facebook at onceascientist. If you like this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend. And thanks for listening.